All right. Hey, Venture, it's great to see you. Welcome to week six of our Rebuilding series. Uh, we're aiming for a perfect number seven. So this week we're rounding third base. We're running toward home. That's the wrong metaphor to use on Super Bowl Sunday weekend, right? Okay, so it's the red zone. I see a Bengals jersey right over here. Perfect. We're in the red zone. It's like the 19-yard line, right? It's third and inches, and we're going for it, baby. Here we go. Speaking of... Uh, Super Bowl. How many of you are rooting today for the Rams? Let me see your hands. I see some hands. I see no cheers. Okay, here, no cheers. All right. How many of you are rooting for the Bengals? Oh, they're closer to the hometown. Favorite now. Very good. Uh, how many of you, we had this poll going on on a Facebook, uh, our Facebook page this past week. It was fun to see the different answers. How many of you are rooting for the snacks? Yeah. I found a recipe this past week for venison skyline chili. That was the day I decided I'm going to root for the Bengals tonight because I thought it goes with the snacks. You got Cincinnati skyline chili. I'm excited about that. Some jalapeno pepper poppers. I'm looking forward to smoking those as well. All right, how many of you, you're in it for the halftime show? Yeah, yeah, not so much. All right. So, uh, you know, th there's a real MVP around here, and I want to make sure we've got our calendars marked for this. It is no small thing to run a 45-year faithful race. Our own David Smith is retiring in two weeks. Pastor David is going to, yeah, yeah, celebrate that. We celebrate that. We also mourn that on staff. And, and, and those of us who love him, we, uh, we, we mourn that as well. But we want to celebrate well in two weeks' time. So two weeks from today, the 27th, I believe, of this month. Make sure you're here that weekend. Pastor David will be preaching that morning. That afternoon, we're going to do an open house from like 3 to 5 p.m. Make sure you're a part of that. That's going to be an incredible send-off. Again, 45 years is an amazing accomplishment of faithful service. And we want to honor that well. Okay, so today, as we continue in this series, the title of today's message is A Courageous Soul. When I look at this part of the book of Nehemiah, chapters 4, 5, and 6, if you're tracking along in your Bible, you can go ahead and go there, Nehemiah chapter 4, 5, and 6, we see a glimpse here of a courageous soul in Nehemiah. I have been thinking about that idea of living a life of courage. There's a story. There's a story from fairly recent, oh, about 100 years ago, Christian history, which on the race that we've been running uh, throughout time as Christians, that's fairly recent, actually, about 100 years ago. Last week, we were talking about the walls of Jerusalem. All series, we've been talking about that because Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls. But last week, I actually put up a map showing you where the walls were during the time of Nehemiah around the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the gates. We spent some time camping out outside the Dung Gate, if you remember that. Had a little bit of fun with that name. We camped out outside the Dung Gate. You don't want to hang out there for very long. I found this map this past week that I, I just have fallen in love with. I want to find this map in its original print condition. I want to buy this map. I love this map. It's from like 1936. This is the old city of Jerusalem. These are the walls that were built, oh, about 500 years ago by, I believe, Saladin was the name of the conqueror, the Muslim conqueror that came in and rebuilt those walls. They're about 500 years old. They don't overlay perfectly with the Jerusalem of Jesus' day, but they're close. 
They definitely don't overlay with the Jerusalem of Nehemiah's day. He rebuilt walls, oh, like about right there. But when you look closely at this map, you see like the Kidron Valley runs right through here. Here's the Mount of Olives over here, and this is the Garden of Gethsemane, if you're familiar with New Testament stories. Last week, we talked about the Valley of Hinnom. We talked about, or in Jesus' day, the Valley of Gehenna runs right through here this way. Last week, we talked about the Dung Gate. It would have been located about here during Nehemiah's day. More recently, this is the Dung Gate right here. If you go a little bit further down the wall, here's the Zion Gate. And if you're familiar with recent history in Israel, this would be like the 1968, I think they called it the Six-Day War. If you stood outside the Zion Gate today, you would still see pockmarks from where bullets hit the walls of the city of Jerusalem during that skirmish. I've stood there before, just marveled at those uh, pockmarked walls. Okay, so right here in this area is what's known as a Protestant uh, cemetery. It's, it's next to a seminary, actually, but it's a Protestant cemetery. It's right outside the old city walls of Jerusalem. And there are some notable Christian people buried there. I've spent some time there. Actually, I snapped a video walking through that beautiful cemetery just a few years ago. Pardon my shaky camera work. I was using an iPhone. It was a beautiful sunny day, and I'm walking up on the walls of this cemetery, and there's a notable person that's buried right there. You're getting ready to see his grave. It's over here on the left side. His name is Horatio Spafford. He was a notable lawyer and businessman in Chicago in like the 1870s, and uh, that's his grave right there, buried on Mount Zion. Can you imagine? Old city of Jerusalem. We'll get a little bit later in the story why he ended up being buried there. But in Chicago, he was friends with a guy named Dwight L. Moody. Perhaps you've heard of him. Maybe you listen to the radio station that's named after his legacy of ministry. The Chicago fire happened about 1873, maybe somewhere in that era. And, and uh, Horatio Spafford decided it was time for his family to take a vacation, go on holiday, as they put it. So he put his wife and I think four girls, children, in a ship, a steamboat, going across the Atlantic toward England. He, was, he had to wrap up some business. He was going to meet them there later. The ship went down at sea. His wife alone survived. This is a picture of his family. And she sent him a telegraph back, a telegram back across the, the sea. And it said simply this, saved alone. What shall I do? Saved alone, all four at that point of his daughters, uh, Annie, who was 11, Margaret, 9, Elizabeth, 5, Tanetta, 2, lost at sea, never found. Can you imagine? Horatio Spafford gets in the next boat he can get on, and he goes across the Atlantic. And when they got to the spot where his wife's and daughter's ship went down, the captain said, we're in that location in the neighborhood right now. He goes into his stateroom and he sits down and he pins the word to a beautiful hymn. Many of us know this well. It's the hymn, it is well with my soul. Oh, I love the lyrics of this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. He's going with a water metaphor over the spot where his family has just died. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's a courageous soul right there. 
Can you imagine writing that? And for my money, the third verse, we oftentimes skip over that one. I love this. This is the gospel story in a line or two. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's God's grace on display. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. I love that story. I love the story behind the story, if you will. I also love the story of Nehemiah. We see a courageous soul on display here. I want to catch up. I've I've been digging this series. Some of you have emailed me. You've been digging this series as well. Let's look at like the thesis verse of this series. The thesis verse, in my opinion, of the the, the book of Nehemiah. It's in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. I love this. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. We need some courage, right? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me. God has been showing up in my life. We need to get busy and rebuild something because God is doing something in our midst. And what the king had said to me, we have permission to do this, and they replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And as we've been looking each week, they've been leaning into this good work of rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the gates of the old city of Jerusalem. Don't miss next week. It's not really about the walls. It's not really about the gates. It's about something else. We'll talk about that next week. But we're going to pick up the pace these last couple of weeks. This week, again, we're looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6. Next week, it'll be a similar pace. So right now, if you've got that Bible in the seat in front of you, if you want to pull that out, I'm on page 481 of that Bible. Or if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. Nehemiah 6, 15, page 481. I want to look at the end. We're going to start with the end in mind, and then we're going to work our way backwards. This is what happened. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. That's rocking and rolling. I mean, this right here is an example of good leadership. This right here is an example of God doing some amazing things through, because we're going to see they ran into some obstacles. In 52 days, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Think about that line right there. Isn't that what we're about? Isn't that the kind of testimony that we want to tell people who are watching us? Our lives are on display through a world that's looking to see Jesus through us. Realize that the work had been done with the help of our God, God leaking through us. Let's go back one more slide. I want to look back at the last line there. What happened was the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence. Self-confidence. There's a reason for this. They're trying to thwart the work that's going on. We're going to dive into that today. But self-confidence versus God-confidence, right? My dad used to listen to, who's that old guy? Paul Harvey. He said, the rest of the story. What's the rest of the story? Well, what is it between those two verses we just looked at that lands them here? What I want to share with you today is three sets of threes. We're talking about rebuilding. So we're going to look at three settling cracks that show up here in the process of the story. We're going to look at three, actually, let's call them wrecking ball kind of strategies. I mean, pretty overt ways to mess with Nehemiah. 
And then we're going to land with three rebuilding tools, and we're going to lock it in, and we're going to leave here on fire. I see a lot of courage under fire in this passage, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Let's start first with rebuilding settling cracks. You know what a settling crack is, right? I've got one in my master bathroom. Every time I patch it over, it shows up again. That's not a good sign, right? There's one over here in my office. I keep seeing one in the drywall show up there. I want to dive in on that as well. But a settling crack, it shows, eh, there's something here underneath the surface that we need to explore. Like this one. Mocking. Nehemiah leans against mocking. It's a settling crack. Let's go ahead and read this together. This is Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat, this arch nemesis, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? You hear the mocking language underneath that? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Well, of course they can't do that. He's just mocking them, right? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? Well, we've shown you the picture a few times during this series. Actually, they did. That's the broad wall. That's the wall that got completed in 52 days that we're celebrating in this story. It still survives to this day. They uncovered this in the 1970s. They got it done, right? With God's help, God on display through them. And then this toady of Sanballat, he says this. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox, if a fox climbed upon it, he would break down their wall of stones. He's just a toady, right? He reminds me of that orange Afro boy in the movie A Christmas Story. You remember that kid, just neeny, 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 kind of sneering? Tobiah is a toady. Have you ever been mocked for Jesus? If you haven't, if you've never been mocked because Jesus is on display in you and through you, is it possible, is it possible that you're a wall sitter? Fence sitter would be the phrase normally, but since we're talking about rebuilding a wall, let's use that metaphor. Kind of playing both sides of the equation. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus has very specific words to say to wall sitters. In his words, speaking to the church of Laodicea, he says this, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will, and the word here is a violent word, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Francis Chan puts it this way. You heard him referenced a bit ago in the communion meditation that Evan was sharing. Lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from their sins. They want to be saved from the consequences of their sins. Do you see the difference there? That's why it's so important to gather together around the Lord's table and confess those sins and wrestle with those sins. And God, how would you have me change? I don't want to be hot or cold. Or I want to be, I want to be hot, not cold. I definitely don't want to be lukewarm because I don't want you to spit me, vomit me out of your mouth. Here's some signs. Here's some signs that maybe you are a lukewarm Christian. You're content 
without Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's a sign. A lukewarm Christian doesn't want to have, uh, doesn't have desire to spend time with Jesus in prayer and worship in the Bible or to serve alongside him. Or maybe, maybe you ignore teaching and conviction. You don't allow others or the Holy Spirit in your life or even the Bible to change you from the inside out. Number three, you welcome and value teachings of philosophers and thought leaders over the full counsel of God's word. A lukewarm Christian will allow philosophies and ideologies to be the foundations of their choices. They expect God's grace to uphold them even when they oppose him with the choices in their lives. Maybe this one, you'd rather remain neutral than set apart. A lukewarm Christian won't pick sides. They'll run from the responsibilities of choosing between righteousness and worldliness and will fight to create a middle ground. There's that fence sitter, that wall sitter analogy, right? They remain neutral in an attempt to gain the best of both worlds. Or maybe you use your voice to advocate for your preferences even when those preferences cause you to oppose God's moral standards. Or maybe your confidence lies in your possessions and your connections and your influence instead of the Lord. Jeff Foxworthy talks about you might be a redneck, right? Well, you might be a wall sitter. You might be a lukewarm Christian if any one of these seven things fits you. Here's the last one. You expect God to conform to the will of people instead of encouraging people to conform to the will of God. Here's the thing. A lukewarm Christian is usually one that has either fallen away so slowly, like the frog in the kettle that's boiling, that they don't recognize their own complacency, or maybe this is them, somebody who's still trying to figure out how to get the best of both worlds. In both cases, we introduce a level of deception and confusion that is damaging to the world out there that's looking at us. Are you hot? Are you cold? Don't be lukewarm. Wall sitting. Are you being mocked by people who are opposed to God like we see here in the story of Nehemiah? Or is it possible that in your wall sitting, you're trying to grab both sides of the equation and split the difference? Is it possible? Is it possible that you're mocking God? I think this is why Jesus says, I don't want lukewarm. I vomit it out of my mouth. That's a settling crack, right? Let's look at the second settling crack. We've learned how to respond to the settling crack of mocking. Well, what we do is we double down on the right side. Here's the second settling crack, fear. We see this sneak into the story here in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. Check this out. But when Sambalot, this toady, Tobiah, his toady again, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, it's working, it's happening, and it's all for God, they were very angry. So what did they do? They all plotted together. Do you see words here that inspire Fear, the settling crack of fear. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. You see the words of fear here. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, they're afraid the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They're discouraged even because of fear. Also, our enemies said before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them. 
and will kill them. You talk about being afraid and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Do you see fear? Can't you just feel it? It's palpable there in the story. When I was a young married man and we adopted a bunch of kids, we did an intensive uh, therapy session with one of our boys. He was wrestling with some attachment issues through adoption. And we did a two-week intensive attachment therapy. And I'll never forget looking at this counselor in the eyes. And he was telling us basically, listen, uh, there's a fear response here. Uh, he's operating way down here in the brain stem. This is the flight or flight part of your processing. Or rather, you're not processing. You're just reacting. We need to move him out here into the frontal lobe. We need to move him out here into the reaches of the brain where he's doing some more processing. And I asked him, well, how do we do that? How do we drive out fear? And I'll never forget this counselor. His name is Rick, looking at the pastor, looking him in the eyes. And he quoted a Bible verse. And he says, well, perfect love drives out fear. Yeah. Yeah. Christians, don't spend too much time down here in your brain stem. Maturity in Christ pushes you beyond fight or flight. We look at stories all throughout Christian history of martyrs who gave their faith for Jesus and they moved from here to here and perfect love drives out fear and it causes us to do amazing things for God. We talked about Horatio Spafford just a bit ago. What is it that causes a man to write when peace like a river going over the spot where he tragically lost his loved ones? Well, there's some courage there. Driving out fear. We'll come back to Horatio here in just a minute, but let's look at another settling crack. It's the settling crack of division. We find this in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Check this out. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must eat grain. So they're fighting even amongst themselves. This is one Jewish family fighting with another Jewish family. They're supposed to be on the same team, but we see division here. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. We're hungry. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money, this is awful, to pay the king's tax on their fields and vineyards. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. There's division here, right? Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Nehemiah says this, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. He gets angry with division. Is anybody else angry about division today inside God's family? There's this New York Times opinion column that I read about a week and a half ago. It says this, of course there's a lot of division across many parts of American society. But for evangelicals who have dedicated their lives to Jesus, their problem is deeper. Christians are supposed to believe in the spiritual unity of the church. While differing over politics and other secondary matters, they are in theory supposed to be unified by their shared first love as brothers and sisters in Christ. Their common devotion is supposed to bring out the fruits of the Spirit. We know these love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That same article quoted somebody named uh, Tim Dalrymple. 
He's the president of a magazine, probably our premier magazine, Christianity Today, and he says this as an evangelical. I found the last five years to be shocking, disorienting, and deeply disheartening. One of the most surprising elements is that I've realized the people who I used to stand shoulder to shoulder with on almost every issue, I now realize that we're separated by a yawning chasm of mutual incomprehension. I would never have thought that that could have happened so quickly. Do you recognize that? Do you feel at odds with somebody maybe in your life who you thought we were simpatico, you thought we were on the same page together? It's a settling crack of division. We have to war against that. So from settling cracks that we see here in the foundation to downright vicious attacks, let's real quick look at three rebuilding wrecking ball tactics. The settling cracks don't take effect. So they take it up a notch. If you look, skip ahead a chapter to Nehemiah chapter 6. Here's the first tactic we see. This is the tactic of distraction. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, check this out. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, they're getting close to finishing here, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. So they're close, but not quite there. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. The plain of Ono, that's down in the tribe of Benjamin. That's a little bit south, probably a little bit southeast of Jerusalem, near Bethlehem. And they're saying, listen, we want you to come out here. We know you're getting close, but let's get together and talk. This is a division. This is a, a distraction tactic. It's kind of like if you're fighting somebody and they've got the haymaker here and they do one of these, hey, look over here, and then they punch you in the gut when you're not looking, when you're looking over here, when you should have been looking over here. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to distract him from the important work that is at hand. What else? Wrecking ball tactic strategy do we see here? They try to discourage him. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 2. Check this out. But they were scheming to harm me. No kidding. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Discouragement. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. By the way, it's filled with lies. Discouragement here. He's trying to use this as a tactic. So I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. The letter was filled with lies. You can read about that yourself. They were trying to frighten us, thinking their, hand will get, uh, their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. We're going to discourage them. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. By the way, what's the opposite of discourage? To encourage. To encourage literally means to put courage into been having some conversations here recently with my wife, and I just, it just feels like there's been a season over the last two or three weeks. You all have encouraged me. I've gotten specific emails on days where I needed to hear that, and, or somebody, what, somebody say, said something to me at just the right time. We've had some moments of six, some cool things that have happened in ministry around here the last few days, and just the power of encouragement to drive out discouragement. Don't miss the potential there. 
Who have you put courage into recently? Is there somebody in your life this week that you can simply encourage them by putting courage into them? Here's the third wrecking ball tactic to discredit. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 10. Let's keep reading. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, Deliah, the son of, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. This feels like a distraction tactic, right? And let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. There's more to this story. Nehemiah realized that God had not sent him, but that this guy was a false prophet and prophesied against me because Tobiah the Sambalot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that, that I would commit a sin. He wants me to be discredited. Something about going into the temple here in this moment, this is going to be a sin against God by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Oh, my God, because what they have done, remember also the prophetess um, Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. Can we invite Nehemiah to encourage us? Those wrecking balls, including the discrediting. Could, could we invite him to put some courage into us? I want to wrap up the message today with some rebuilding tools. So I brought my uh, tool belt toward that end. What are some rebuilding tools of courage? We've been playing with this metaphor of rebuilding through this whole series long. Let's invite Nehemiah to encourage us. Let's keep reading and see what it is. Did you see in the text that we just read, it kind of ended with a prayer? If you read closely chapter 4, 5, and 6, you're going to see like he just inserts these prayers all the time. It's almost as if he's living a lifestyle of prayer. Let's read. Here's a specific prayer. This is right after the first settling crack of mocking. We just talked about that. That had just happened. Look what happens here. He prays. He says, hear us, O our God, for we're despised. Turn our insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. It amazes me when I read through chapter 4, 5, and 6. The number of times Nehemiah, it's almost like his narrative shifts. He's telling the story of what God has been doing through him, and he's kind of given us a historical account as if we're the audience. And then all of a sudden, the audience shifts. And now he's in prayer with God. That's what we just saw here. He was telling us that he had been mocked, and then he launches into a prayer. It's got me to thinking, you keep a prayer journal. This is a pretty good strategy. To write your prayers down, God, uh, Don gave me this uh, journal several years ago. And, you know, you write your prayers down, and then you're able to go back later and see God's answered that prayer. Or, wow, I was thinking that then, and look how God has shifted my mindset since then. 
It's almost as if when we read through the book of Nehemiah, the number of times he bounces in and out of the narrative, this is what happened, and now he's talking to God. It's almost like it's his prayer journal. It's almost like he's telling the story, telling, and God is the audience. God, this is what I've done for you. Oh, by the way, God, would you show up in a real way here? I need you right now. We've talked this whole series long. We launched it talking about the foundation of rebuilding is prayer. We talked about the knee pads, and we need to wear out our knees in prayer. That was week two or three. Prayer is a powerful rebuilding tool. How is your prayer life going? Conversational prayer. Prayer with God, this is a great tool. What else do we have in here? Well, we've got the tool of self-sacrifice. I grabbed the um, first aid kit from home before I left this morning. I'm hoping nobody falls and bangs their head open. They'll be in a real problem because I've got all of the Band-Aids right here. Do you keep a tool kit or do you keep a, a first aid kit handy when you're working on a project or maybe you're taking a trip and you've got that right there? Self-sacrifice. We see this on display, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. Check this out. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. He's saying, not me. I, there was self-sacrifice here. I attack the settling cracks. I attack the downright wrecking ball tactics that are being thrown at me with a lifestyle of self-sacrifice because people notice. Their assistance also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, it's like, I could have taken food, I could have taken money, I could have gotten rich from land, but furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. Self-sacrifice. This came out of my own pocket, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me and for them, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. I led through self-sacrifice because the demands were heavy on these people. Self-sacrifice. That's a good tool for going after discouragement. People notice sacrifice. People are inspired to follow self-sacrifice. Do you live just for you? Or do you live for God and put your needs second to him being on display? Last tool in the tool belt. These rebuilding tools of courage strategies, we've got prayer. This is a PSA, by the way. Prayer, sacrifice, and then finally action. You put your faith into action, and when you put it on display, the world notices, right? This happens in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 4. Actually, I could look at a bunch of places. He posted guards at one point. We've read about that already. But there's this point where they build the wall literally with swords and spears in their hands. Check this out. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16. You talk about action. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the men of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. 
but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. I suspect that was because, you know, if the alarm came, they needed to be there to sound the alarm if somebody was heading that direction. If you read in Nehemiah chapter 5, we're not going to do that today, but if you read that, he has to go into action, doing battle actually with his own countrymen because there's infighting happening there. Other Jewish people are trying to rip off their own countrymen. Here's a question. What do you do with this time that we've lived through? We're talking about rebuilding. My goodness, it's been a crazy couple of years. What do you do? How, does it, how do you apply what you've been experiencing over the last two years moving forward? There's this phrase that keeps rolling through my head. This is a popular TikTok video right now. Maybe you've seen this. And as I've read through Nehemiah, I picture these, these, these people like, like goldsmiths and perfumers building a wall with building tools in one hand and tools of war in the other. We just read that passage. I love this Japanese saying, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in war. Maybe. I've gone back and forth as I've thought about that quote over the last couple of weeks. It's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Or maybe a gardener in a war who puts his faith and his confidence in Jesus. And Jesus on display, Jesus wins in and through him. And I think we see that over and over again in the book of Nehemiah. There's another quote that's been rolling around here recently. This is from a book that was written a few years ago. Uh, it's actually a novel called Those Who Remain. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. Do you see the cyclical effect there? If you've learned anything over the last two years... If God has whispered in your heart anything over the last couple of years, these hard times that we've lived through, what do you do with that? How do you make that a learning tool, not just for your life, but how do you put that in action for others as well to draw them to Jesus? How is God shaping you right now? I want to end. I want to end by looking back where we started at Horatio Spafford's grave. I've actually got a picture of me next to his grave several years ago. By the way, that location, that would not have been uh, the walls, near the walls that he was rebuilding, but he would have looked across the valley and he would have seen that same location we're looking at right there. Nehemiah would have seen that space. Probably sheep would have been grazing there in his day. Let me show you what happened with Horatio Spafford. Why did he end up in Jerusalem? Well, because he and his wife, after the tragic death of their children, they decided to become missionaries. They put their faith into action. Across the pond, Jerusalem was not uh, the tourist de destination that it is today at that point, but there were some indigenous uh, Jewish people and Arab uh, people that were living right there in that location, and they put their life on display and became missionaries telling them about Jesus. The American Society House, that's this place. This is the, the group gathered together. Actually, this is a picture of them outside Herod's Gate. We were talking about the gates of Jerusalem just a bit ago. But they lived their life on display before God. Remember the, the song that he wrote? Putting their faith into action. I love this song. This is, uh, it is well with my soul. We skipped over line two. The second verse says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, his kids died, remember? Let this blessed assurance control 
that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. As you think about how God is calling you this week to put your faith into action, would you stand up with us? We're going to wrap up our time together just as a moment of declaration. What is God rebuilding in your heart? What's he rebuilding in your soul right now? Think about that. Commit it to God as we sing together the last line of this beautiful old hymn. Let's sing it right now. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be process that with somebody, if there's something you're working through right now, and, or maybe you're thinking about the next step of your faith journey. If that's you, I'll be hanging out under the cross right over here. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love the opportunity to encourage you, to put some courage into you. The rest of us, we're going to head out there into the mission field that God has called us to today. Put your faith on display. Put those tools into action. God bless you, Venture. We'll see you back again next week.